Thank you, uh, Sue. Before we look at this passage in Romans, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to speak into our lives today. It's a difficult passage this morning, so we pray that your Holy Spirit would really help us to understand what you would say to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, I wonder what you think about good news and bad news jokes. Most of them take place in a doctor's surgery, so are in rather bad taste. But uh, my favourite good news, bad news joke actually is a a biblical one. uh, And uh, it's where God calls down to Moses and says, Look, Moses, I've got good news and bad news. Which would you like first? Moses asks for the good news first. Well, Moses, God says, the good news is that I will deliver my people from slavery. It will involve years of pestilence in Egypt including plagues of locusts and frogs. Pharaoh's armies will chase you, but don't worry because I will part the waters of the Red Sea to help you escape. Wow, that's great news, says Moses. So what's the bad news? God answers, well, Moses, you will have to prepare the environmental impact statement. (laughs) Now, the gospel of Jesus is good news. It is unquestionably good news. In fact, Paul said as much right at the beginning of this letter to the Romans, chapter 1 and verse 1, where he says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. And then later on in chapter 1, in the passage that we looked at last week, he says the same thing, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Paul's business is the good news business. That's what he's about. But we can't escape the fact that there are places in the Bible where the news definitely appears to be bad rather than good. Indeed, sometimes we even find good news and bad news in a single verse. If we fast forward uh, to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it starts with the bad news. For the wages of sin is death. The news doesn't get worse than that. Sin means death. But then comes the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bad news, good news, even in a single verse. As Edward said, we're into week two of a short series looking at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. And the series is entitled, From Rags to Righteousness. And in these early chapters of of the letter to the Romans, we we have what can only be described as a good news, bad news roller coaster. We've already heard that the letter starts with good news. Verse 16, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But then from verse 18 of chapter 1 onwards, we get the bad news. And that is that our righteous God is angry. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then verse 21, for although they knew, the people knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In verse 23, Paul talks about people exchanging the glory of the immortal God for idols. Verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1, Paul lists a whole bunch of behaviors that result from our rejection of God. Jealousy, murder, fighting, and so on. It's all a pretty tough read, isn't it, to be honest? But then it gets worse, because at the very end of chapter 1, Paul finishes with this section with the coup de grace. This rejection of God by the world, by us, makes us deserving of death, because our creator God is righteous, and holy, and he cannot bear our sinfulness. So you get to the end of chapter 1, and you're thinking, okay, well, Paul, you were promising us some good news, but it hasn't quite... Where? I mean, where is it? As a child might say from the back of a car, are we nearly there yet? So we get to chapter 2, and we ask, is this where the good news starts? Is there any good news in chapter 2? Well, no, not really. Because Paul, in chapter 2, has in his crosshairs those who are self-righteous, the religious people, those who think that sin is always somebody else's problem. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul has a go at the ultra-religious. Those who rely on the law and boast in God. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Because in fact they are no better. So it is still bad news. And now this morning, we come to chapter 3. Okay, It's definitely time for some good news. But as you heard this morning, our passage from chapter 3 didn't quite deliver, did it? In fact, we are transported to a courtroom, what appears to be a courtroom. This is uh, the central criminal court in the Old Bailey. And what we have here is effectively the prosecution, the barrister summoning up and summarizing the case for the prosecution. I don't know if you like courtroom dramas. Um, I love them. Some of you will remember Rumpole of the Bailey um, and that kind of thing. But this courtroom drama is a drama like no other. And first we get a succinct summary by Paul of the charge or the indictment against us. In verse 9 of chapter 3, and it's on your sheets, you'll see. What does he write? What shall we conclude then? We being, do we have any advantage? We being the Jews or or religious people, do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now let's just dwell on this indictment for a moment, because it's important. In fact, it is in itself a vital part of the gospel message. The first word to note is all. 
We are all under the power of sin. No exceptions. Now, this is a difficult message to grasp, isn't it, in today's world? Because we make excuses for our sin, don't we? In fact, deep down, fundamentally, we think we're okay. We're fundamentally innocent. When the politician Jonathan Aitken was convicted of perjury at the Old Bailey in 1999, he was immediately sent down to a cell in the bowels of the, of the Old Bailey, and that's where all the other convicted prisoners were being held. Aitken noted that all of them, without exception, were protesting their innocence, still protesting their innocence. Some of them were banging their heads against the bars. I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But they weren't. They were guilty. And we're the same in a way, aren't we? We defend ourselves. We make excuses. But our excuses do not wash with God. Paul says as much at the end of our passage. Just look at verse 19, where he says that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Every mouth will be silenced because there is nothing we can say in our defense. I'm reminded of a time some years ago when I was driving down the M11 in a car with Italian diplomatic number plates because I was on leave at that time from my posting in Rome. I was driving a little too fast. Verse 9. We are all under the power of sin. A policeman pulled me over and he got me out of the car. He looked at the unusual number plates and he asked very slowly, do you speak English? <laughs> For a brief moment. <laughs> I just thought, mi dispiace, sono italiano, non riesco a capire, cosa dicendo? Again, a sin, one that might have got me into a lot of trouble. You should not bear false witness. My conscience got the better of me. So I explained in English who I was, where I was working. Do you drive like that in Italy, sir? The policeman asked. Officer, I replied. They all drive like that in Italy. <laughs> it was... The feeblest of defences. The officer laughed and let me off. But I was deserving of punishment. How much more do our feeble excuses exasperate our righteous and holy God? The second thing to note in verse 9 is this phrase, under the power of sin. And note that it is sin singular, not sin plur sins plural. You see, this is about our fundamental state, our nature, not our individual peccadilloes. We are, by our very nature, corrupt. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul writes that we are, by nature, deserving of wrath. We don't just do sins, we are sinful. The American pastor and theologian, R.C. Sproul, put it succinctly. 
We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Now this is, let's face it, the most damning indictment, isn't it? But in this courtroom summation, Paul also produces the final evidence with a barrister's flourish. In verses 10 to 18, which we had read in our Bible reading, he says, don't just take it from me, Paul, that we're all under the power of sin. Take it from God himself, because this is all revealed in his word. And he goes on to quote from uh, eight different Hebrew scriptures, from six different Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, from Isaiah, to demonstrate his point, that we are all sinners. We are all, without exception, under the power of sin. And the evidence that Paul presents is overwhelming. First, he indicts us for our character. Just look at verse 11. There is no one who seeks God. You see, we don't give God the honor, the respect, the worship that he deserves. Of course, some of us might seek God, but we seek him on our own terms, not on his. In fact, it's like a game of hide and seek. But it is not our seeking God and him hiding from us, but him, God, seeking us and our hiding from him. A vicar once went into a primary school to speak at an assembly. It wasn't Edward, I don't think, or perhaps it wasn't you. A little boy asked him what his biggest sin was. How would you answer that question? The vicar replied, my biggest sin is the same as yours. The boy wondered to himself, you mean hitting my sister? And raiding the cookie jar? But the vicar explained, my biggest sin and yours is that we rebel against God. And he's right, isn't he? That is ultimately our biggest sin. It's our rebellion. As Paul puts it in verse 18 of our passage, there is no fear of God before our eyes. Second, Paul indicts us for our conversation Verses 13 to 14, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And we know in our hearts, don't we, how damning our tongues can be. James puts it starkly in his letter, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil, among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Somebody else put it this way, our speech has the smell of death about it, because there is nothing but death within us. So Paul, in this passage here, by quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures, indicts us for our character and for our conversation. And then finally, he condemns us for our conduct. The language is dramatic, but it doesn't make it any less true. Verses 15 to 17. Their hour, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the peace of God they do not know. We only have to look at our newspapers or watch the news 
especially now with all that's happening in Ukraine, to see how true this is. Our behaviour is innately selfish and destructive, whether it leads to violence or the corruption of our created world or the destruction of our relationships with others. Because God is completely holy and righteous, even our supposedly good conduct falls short of God's perfect standard. As someone once said, since none of us is perfect, we are all bad. So we stand in the dock, in that central criminal court in the Old Bailey, and we have just heard Paul summing up, and we have no answer. Every mouth is silenced, verse 19. We came into the courtroom thinking, genuinely thinking, that we were innocent, that sin is what other people do, that my sins really aren't so bad. How can doing an extra five miles per hour on the M11 hurt anybody? But Paul demonstrates that we are all, without exception, under the power of sin. Our very character, our conversation, our conduct, these all stand condemned because our very nature is to rebel against our creator God, the God who created us. This is indeed, as per the title of this talk, our big problem. Capital B, capital P. But... As I said, the letter to the Romans is a good news, bad news roller coaster. And you will be glad to hear, as am I, that after all this talk of our sinful natures all the way from chapter 1 and verse 18 through to uh, 3 verse 20, the end of our passage this morning, in the very next verse, verse 21, Paul finally gives us the good news. Now, we aren't looking at this verse today. We have to wait for that until next week. But it's important that I remind you of this verse because it's a vital part of the, of the good news of the gospel. Verses 21 to 24, I'll read them out. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, although we are all, without exception, we stand condemned by our character, by our conversation, by our conduct, by our rebellion against God, despite all this, we're in that courtroom and we are reckoned to be innocent. We are cleared of all charges through the grace of God, in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? But as I close, there is an obvious question, which is, how do we apply all this? Well, I think it needs to affect how we think of the gospel and also how we share the gospel with others. You see, the gospel is ultimately good news. Of course it is. But we cannot escape the bad news that is contained in the gospel message. You see, some people think that the gospel is just about love. It's all about love. Preach love, and that's the gospel. Can't go far wrong. That's the argument that you hear in the current debate on sexuality and marriage, just about love. But this is to misunderstand and misrepresent the gospel. 
You see, in its simplest form, the gospel says three things. One, God created us in love to glorify and enjoy him, to worship him. Two, we rejected God by choosing our own way, by turning away from him, by choosing our own path and to rebel against him. That's what sin is. That's what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning. Three, despite this rebellion, despite our disobedience, God loves us so much that he provided a means of reconciliation between man and God through his son Jesus for those who believe and repent of their sins. We can't get to the love of God in part three without truly convicting people of their sinfulness, part two. Otherwise, we're presenting a solution to a problem that they don't know they have. Now, in our modern secular age, where sin is seen by most people as little more than a guilty pleasure, it's like, as one person put it, ice cream and lingerie. It's a difficult message to communicate. But remember, it's not our work to convict people of their sin, primarily. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. John 16 and verse 8. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be wrong, in the wrong, about sin and righteousness and judgment. The world is in the wrong about sin. Paul shows us with this shocking indictment in Romans 3 how wrong the world is. Let's not sugarcoat the gospel. Let's not apply saccharin to it by taking out the vital message of sin. But let's also give thanks that God responded to the big problem of our sin with the person of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that through Paul and elsewhere in Scripture, you convict us of our sinfulness, our rebellion, our disobedience. We pray, Lord, that the world too might come to that conviction by the power of your Spirit. But we thank you for the good news that we have in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that that good news would give us daily joy and it would be good news that we would want to share with all whom we meet. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.